have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as we close out this series that we've entitled Avoiding Gospel. going to be verses 7 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. To read it in this context, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and I actually made sure that 1 through 12 were in the slides this week, so they should be there on screen if you want to follow along. Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 1 through to verse 12, and obviously our text will be verses 7 to 12 this morning, as we think about the subject of obeying the truth, obeying the truth. Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 1, if you're physically able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word? Galatians chapter 5, I will read the odd numbered verses, I'll invite you to read the even numbered verses with me. Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Brothers and sisters, these are God's very words. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith, Working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who pulls it. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself, the persuaded in the Lord, you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross, the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are disturbing might also let themselves be mutilated. The cross with us, the flower fades, but this word above all will abide forever. Join with me as I pray, ask for the Lord's help when we come to his word. Well, Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we open up your word today, you would cause us to see our ever-increasing, ever-deepening need of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us that we would appreciate our need for continued faith in him. Father, it's usually my habit when we gather to hear your word preached to pray for area church. But Father, I want to take a moment this morning to pray for the churches of our region, the Pacific Northwest. Father, your word tells us that you have 
established the bounds of humanity, given them their habitations, that you place people where they need to be, you place people where they should live, and have families, and form communities, and form nations. And so Father, we thank you for our region. Thank you for our great state of Oregon. We thank you for Washington State. Thank you for Idaho. And Father, we pray for the churches in our region. Statistic our statistic tells us that this is one of the hardest regions for evangelical churches. And Father, it's easy to wonder what's happening. It's easy to wonder where you're at work. But we know you are at work. We know that you are indeed raising up a people for your name. And so we pray for the churches of our region. We pray for the churches that are being faithful to your word, that are ministering your word, that they would continue to do so, that they would not despise the day of small beginnings as your word says. We pray for even those churches that are failing in that regard. We pray for the churches that aren't being faithful to your word. That if these are indeed churches that have the lampstand before you, that you would be gracious to them. You would open their eyes to their need to minister in such a way as to give your son all the glory. That they would ground their ministries not on the latest ideas or the latest wisdom of man, but upon the scriptures. Father, we may be so bold. We pray for revival in our region. We pray that you would stir your people up. Both in their commitment to the ordinary means of grace. And in their commitment to share the gospel with others. We don't deny that there are churches where reformation is necessary. Where that which is unbiblical needs to be made straight. Where that which is out of alignment needs to be realigned. Father, we pray that you would raise up shepherds, raise up pastors and elders and teachers who love your word, who love the truth, who will go and revitalize churches, who will plant churches, who will begin ministries that will see this region impacted. And so, Father, we pray that as we gather for worship now, that you will be glorified, that we will be equipped, that we will be strengthened for the work of ministry that you called us to do. And above all, may we see our Lord Jesus, because without him we can do nothing. It's in his name we pray and for his glorious sake. Amen. Please be seated. I've typed our text this morning in Galatians 5, 7 to 12. Keep obeying the truth. Keep obeying the truth. This is the final part of Paul's fivefold appeal to the Galatians that we've been considering. This fivefold appeal that began in chapter 4, verse 8, and now comes to a conclusion with these last six verses. It's Paul's fivefold appeal to these Galatian Christians to hold on to the true gospel and to avoid a distorted, a twisted, a perverted gospel. And as we've been marching through this series, you may have noticed that I've been at great pains to apply this to the life of our church 
to the witness of our church in a more pointed way than I usually would. And that's been intentional on my part. I mean, praise the Lord, we're young. In a lot of ways, our church is getting reestablished. And praise the Lord, while I believe that we're definitely not the victim of a distorted gospel, the temptation to become amenable to one is never too far away. And so with that being the case, we're allowing Paul's appeals and pleadings in this section that we've been studying for the last five, six weeks to speak directly to us. We're hoping that through these appeals that we would be brought back, just as Paul tried to do with the Galatians, brought back to foundational principles and to deep truths. Oftentimes as Christians, when we encounter spiritual problems, our temptation is often to apply fleeting solutions to deep-seated problems. And I hope you've caught that as we've looked at this section in Galatians 4, 8 through 5, 12, at least up to this point, what we've looked at. I hope you've seen that Paul doesn't commit himself to fleeting solutions to the kinds of spiritual problems which the Galatians face. I would put it to you that you need to, whenever you face these kinds of issues, you don't need to go shallow, you need to go deep. Or, as my new friend that I made this weekend with Jonas, Pastor in Antigua put it, you need to go hard on theological truths when we face challenges in life and witness as a church. And so we've been looking at these appeals that Paul has made. He's made four parts to this appeal already, and now we come to the final part this morning in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5. That final appeal really comes to us summarized quite well in verse 7. So did you catch it? Paul says, verse 7, You were running well. Who, who prevented you? from being persuaded regarding the truth. Some of your translations will have, instead of the word being persuaded, the word obey or obeying the truth. I think that's actually a better translation. So if you've got the New American Standard in front of you or the English Standard Version, they both have the sentence translated, who hindered you from obeying the truth? I think that's actually a better translation. I think that my translation of CSB is kind of picking up on a nuance there. But the nuance that it's picking up on, I think misses the point just a little bit. Paul's talking about obeying the truth thing. And so as Paul talks about obeying the truth, that does beg a question for a moment. It's going to be important before we dig into the details of this passage. And the question is, well, what is biblical obedience? The question is, what does it look like for a Christian to obey the truth? Now, when we hear the word obedience, where do our minds naturally go? When you hear the word obedience, our minds naturally go to doing what you're told. You receive an instruction and you do it. I mean, it's how we're socialized from the earliest. I know I was taught that obedience was doing what you're told on the first ask with no questions and with a willing heart. Now, that's a vital part of obedience. But if I can use an analogy this morning, it's akin to... Well, it's akin to looking at the branches of a tree and thinking that's the whole tree. Branches are good. They're a vital part of a tree. But let's not confuse the branches with the root of the tree. The branches are only going to be as good as the root of the tree. 
And when we think about obedience, if we only think about obedience in terms of I do what I'm told, we've missed the point of biblical obedience entirely. To help us with this, before we get into our text this morning, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is going to help us for just a moment as we think about what true obedience looks like. We're jumping into the context. We're going to be in verse 26. So as you're turning there, allow me to build up the context a little bit. John chapter 6 is the famous I am the bread of life statement. One of those seven I am's that you find in John's gospel. In chapter 6, Jesus has been preaching all day. The crowds start to get hungry. That becomes a problem because... These are people who usually only ate one meal a day. They were not rich by any step, by any account. And so for them not to have eaten all day now becomes a problem. There are thousands of them. And so Jesus performs a miracle. He's able to supply food for this crowd of almost 10,000. And as he supplies food for them, the people are fed, therefore, and they're amazed by this. I mean, the crowd's on the spot. If a man rolls up and provides for you free food, you're probably going to look for the guy the next day. And so Jesus returns to that region, and we pick up the story in verse 26. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaf. You're not seeking me because what I'm doing is pointing you in the direction of righteousness. No, you're seeking me because you're hungry. Well, Jesus ups the ante in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He says, listen, physical food is good. There's no problem with physical food, but don't Chase me for physical food. Chase me for the spiritual food that I can supply to you. Which leads to not just your physical life, but to eternal life. Verse 28 says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, we ask an obedience question. What should we do to be doing the works of God? Well, in verse 29, Jesus gives us what I think is a critical answer as we think about this whole subject of obedience as Christians. What is the work that pleases God? First and foremost. Look at me in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. That you believe in Him on whom, excuse me, believe in Him whom He has sent. God's work. The kind of work that pleases God is that you believe in the one that the Father sent. Well, who's the one that the Father sent? Jesus. You see, before obedience is expressed in good works, true obedience is expressed in simple faith in Jesus. True obedience is grounded in and flows from faith in Christ. It's not just a, okay, well, God gave the law, right? Boom, I do it. That's fine. No, it's a heart that says, Lord, I believe you. I believe in what you have done. I believe in your son and his work for me. And out of that flows 
good works that God has ordained that we should walk in. And so true obedience is grounded in and flows from faith in Christ. And in our text, if you want to come back to Galatians 5 with me, in our text in Galatians chapter 5, Paul straight up asks, you guys are running well. Where has your obedient faith gone? If I could summarize our um, message in one sentence this morning, it would be this. A distorted gospel shipwrecks simple faith in Jesus. So hold on to the truth. A distorted gospel shipwrecks simple faith in Jesus. So hold on to the, the truth. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to consider two warnings against two negative effects of a distorted gospel on simple faith in Jesus. It's going to be a very simple passage. Not a massively complicated outline. We're just going to march our way through this text. negative effects that a distorted gospel, a jacked up gospel, a messed up gospel has on just simple faith in Jesus. And Paul's going to give us those two negative effects in the forms of two warnings. First of all, consider with me warning number one. Don't let a distorted gospel hinder your progress. Don't let a distorted few moments ago, the central theme of this section is given to us right from the top. So in verse 7, the theme here is about being persuaded or obeying the truth. And Paul pulls this analogy, a favorite analogy of his, the analogy of the race. In fact, he's already used it in Galatians. So do you remember back in chapter 2, verse 2, where he talked about himself and he said he wanted to be sure that he was not running and had not been running in vain? Paul loves this analogy of the race for the Christian life. He uses it a ton of places. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 26, Paul says that I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul describes his life in three separate ways. He says, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith, but the one in the middle, I have finished the race. In Acts chapter 20, as he addresses the Ephesian elders, he says, But I consider my life of no value to myself. Acts 20, 24. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul employs this analogy of a race a lot in the Christian life because it speaks to two vital parts of our Christian experience. It speaks to effort because if you've ever run before, running is work. It's not easy. It requires exertion. But not only does running speak to effort, it speaks to progress. Because if you do it properly, you start in one place and you finish somewhere else. Paul essentially says that the Galatians were making effort towards progress in their Christian lives and then they were. Something had happened, and clearly what had happened grieved Paul. The fourth century preacher, John Chrysostom, he was known as the Golden Mouth because of his ability to just turn phrases. He summarized Paul heart, Paul's heart in his 
series of homilies on the book of Galatians, he put it like this. He said, quote, that with this question, in verse 7, this is not an interrogation, but an expression of doubt and sorrow. How has such a course been cut short? Who has been able to do this? You who are superior to all and in the ranks of teachers have not continued in the position of disciples. What has happened to you? Who could do these? Who could do this, excuse me? These are the words of one who is exclaiming and lamenting as he has before. Who has bewitched you? End quote. The Galatians were making faithful, fruitful progress, but something had happened. Someone, and we know who the someone is because we've been talking about them throughout the series in Galatians, the Judaizers, these false teachers who were adding the works of the Mosaic law to faith in Jesus. These people had gotten in the way and somehow these Galatians who were running well have become somewhat hamstrung in the race. And Paul, in Pauline fashion, calls the problem what it is. You see that there in verse 8? He says, this persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. I mean, Paul's made this point multiple times in our study up to this point. There is one gospel, the good news of Jesus' obedient life, of his satisfying death, of his glorious resurrection, of his continued intercession. That's the only good news we have as Christians. Any other message wasn't God's message. In particular, in, verses, in chapters 3 and 4, as we've studied them, I hope it's been clear to anyone who's been listening that faith and faith alone in Jesus alone is what pleases God. God's message would never elevate man and denigrate grace the way the Judaizers did. By the way, if I could pause for just a moment, that's what a distorted gospel does. As it were, it shifts the spiritual center of gravity off of our holy and triune God and his gracious work in salvation. It shifts that emphasis and it moves the center of gravity onto self-effort and self-salvation. In the end, you're, a false gospel makes you think that you're making progress, but you're making the kind of progress that a hamster on a wheel does. Now, some of you will be surprised by this. I secretly think that hamsters are the cutest animals alive. I really like hamsters. They're just so small and chubby. They're generally quite harmless. You ever seen a hamster in a, uh, running in a wheel? Funniest things ever. They, they put a lot of effort into that. They really do. It's heartwarming to watch. But, God bless them, hamsters are kind of dumb. <laughs> They're just running in place, going nowhere. All that effort and making no progress. That's what a distorted gospel does. Paul is ringing out a serious warning here when he says, listen, you were running well and somebody's now hindered you. This doesn't come from God. He's being very serious. And what does human nature do when we hear, when we hear a warning and we don't like it? We minimize. It's not that big a deal, which I think is one of the worst phrases in the English language. You say, oh, it's not that big a deal. You're overreacting. 
We minimize. So Paul, recognizing that tendency and writing on the inspiration, he says, uh, not so far, first time. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. A very common biblical analogy comes up over and over and over again. And it's usually not positive. The idea of leaven, yeast. This false teaching is like yeast. Even a little bit in the right environment will spread like mad. As one common thing to put it, Paul's point is that unless checked, this Judaizing tendency, though small in itself, will permeate the entire community in Galatia and make self-offering to God both impossible and unacceptable. We live in an age where very live and let live, laissez-faire, it's not that big a deal, Christianity. We, we live in that kind of an age. And in an age like that, we need to be reminded that false teaching can never be contained. It can never be just a thing of, well, I know they're wrong in that area, but you know, it's just one area. be a little blunt this morning. Today it's a little excess skin that you need to cut off. You know, just a few laws about what day to keep. You know, what foods to eat. You know, today it's just something small. It's not that big a deal. But Paul's point is that, listen, that thing spreads. And before you know it, today it's that, tomorrow it's leaving Jesus by the wayside. Turn me to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to see something for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I just want to look at one verse of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. First verse. All to the Hebrews is magnified the greatness of our Savior Jesus. He's pointed out why Jesus is unlike anybody else. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he drives home his point like any good preacher should do. Verse 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. That language of drift away, I think, is a perfect translation for what's happening here. When you hear these stories, you've heard a bunch of them in recent years, of people who, as it were, just walk away from Christianity, they walk away from the faith. There was one particular author was kind of a big deal a number of years ago, wrote a book on dating that personally I think was garbage, but you can talk to me about that another time. But nonetheless, this guy was kind of prominent in our theological circle. And then out of nowhere, seemingly, since he's no longer a Christian. In fact, was at one point trying to sell a course about deconstructing your faith, basically how to abandon Christianity in 10 simple steps. And people hear these things and they're like, oh my word, how did this happen? How oh, the sky is falling. What on earth? And it's like, mm, no, no, no. When you hear these stories of people, as it were, just walking away from the faith, never get the idea that something just flipped. Like they woke up one morning and just like, no, I'm done. Not according to the author to the Hebrews. Not according to what we read in Galatians 5. No, it wasn't quite, they just fell off the cliff one day. In the words of one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, apostasy is a slow drift, not a sharp decline. 
So coming back to Galatians 5, Paul says, listen, if you let false teaching in today, it's... Have you ever seen yeast acting, by the way? Yeast doesn't act quickly. It takes time. But once it starts acting, you can't stop it. Here's the thing that's frightening to be personal. Paul writes these words in Galatians 5.9. He writes them as a... To me as a pastor, this is frightening. He writes these words not to individuals. He writes them to a church. Can I pause the Simonic boss for a moment? Can I, can I park by the side of the road and just have a conversation for a second? Churches can get excited about doing stuff. You know, work for work's sake. But beloved, can I put it to you that there's work that is profitable for the people of God to be engaged in, and there is work that is futile for the people of God to be engaged in. And the temptation often is, okay, well, how do I know when something's profitable, and how do I know when something is futile? How do I know when I should do something, and how do I know when I shouldn't? Well, here's, here's how you can tell the difference. If whatever you're pursuing isn't grounded in the gospel, if it isn't the kind of effort that gives Jesus the full billing that he deserves, it's a waste of time. And again, I'm not speaking about what you do in your individual lives. That, that's a more nuanced and complex conversation. I do believe in the doctrine of vocation. God gives us all different callings. I don't think that a more quote-unquote spiritual life is more valuable than a more quote-unquote secular or regular life. I don't believe that. But as a church, I think at times we need to be reminded of the fact that we have to grow, and we have to work, excuse me, at growing in simple reliance on Jesus through the means of grace that he gives to us, his word, prayer, the sacraments. We have to work at those things. Why? Because if we're not careful, other things will come in, and once they come in, they spread very quickly. I mean, already, this sounds kind of intense, doesn't it? Uh, this doesn't sound like, you know, here's a little pat on the back. You know. I, I feel like these words you can't read on Caleb. I mean, it sounds kind of intense. Do you feel a sense of foreboding, a sense of dread in Paul's words as you read these? You might feel that. And I can understand how you would. But in verse 10, Paul gives us some confidence. Paul gives us some hope. Verse 10, he says, I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view. In the original language, and the CSB picks up on this, Paul is emphatic. Despite how bad things look, Paul himself had a confidence. He had a trust that despite how bad things looked, that the Galatians know the gospel. And they can shake off this predilection for a distorted one. It's interesting. Paul uses exactly the same word for persuasion here that he used back in verse 8. Though the Galatians might have been persuaded to give the Judaizing heresy a listen, Paul had a persuasion that did come from God. Yes, their persuasion didn't, but his one did. These were God's people. And God would surely bring them back to the truth. I mean, why could Paul be so persuaded? Was it that Paul was a spiritual Pollyanna? sickeningly optimistic despite common sense and a pair of eyes? Was it that Paul had amazing confidence as a teacher and a theologian and an administrator and a leader that, listen, 
through sheer force of will and through just being cleverer than them, I can bring them back. Was that Paul's confidence? No, you, you read the answer in verse 10. I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view. David McWilliams in his amazing commentary on Galatians, I highly recommend it. He said, quote, due to the power of the gospel, Paul still entertains the hope that the Judaizers will not follow the Judaizing false gospel of works. Obviously, the Galatians have not gone over lock, stock, and barrel to the Judaizing position, and Paul aims at recovering them for whatever degree of defection has occurred. But the reality is that God's people can and will falter. The reality is that God's people can sometimes miss their way egregiously. God's people can and will falter when it comes to gospel progress. But here's the good news. That even when that takes place, God's purposes can never be thwarted. And that's why Paul is able to make this five-fold appeal that we've been studying. It's precisely because his confidence in ministry was not out of, well, I'm really good and I can do great things for God. Paul's boast was not in his ability. It was in God's ability and God's work for, in, and through him. And because of that, Paul could have ultimate assurance that the Galatians would be delivered from this, that they get back on track, and ultimately, all would be well spiritually. Paul also had confidence in the fact that God knows exactly how to deal with false teachers. So catch it there in verse 10, the other half. So he says, I myself am explaining the Lord that you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now Paul's already talked about this. We don't need to guess what the penalty is. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. That anathema, that curse from God. Paul's already called that down on anybody with a false gospel. We don't have time this morning, but if you read in particular 2 Peter chapter 2, and also the letter of Jude, by the way, we have a teaching series going through the letter of Jude, four parts. You can listen to it on our website, redeemermedford.org. If you read those two chapters of God's word, 2 Peter 2, Jude is one chapter. Both authors go to great pains to show that false teachers have a certain doom. That for those who would trouble God's people with a distortion of the gospel message, God would ultimately trouble them. And so Paul could have confidence in the fact that yes, God will take care of this. So they should not allow a distorted gospel to hinder their progress. Powerful reasons that Paul marshals to remind them of the fact that they should keep on in their faithful progress. But he doesn't just appeal to them not to be hindered in their progress. Secondly, I told you, we're going to be here long. Secondly, he says, don't let a distorted gospel corrupt God's message. Don't let a distorted gospel corrupt like a weird, canon, a weird addendum, excuse me. Commentators really can't agree on what's happening here while Paul's made the leap from where he is to where we are now in verses 11 and 12. 
as far as we can piece together just by paying attention to the context, it would seem, and Paul's actually alluded to this already in chapter 1, verse 10, it would seem that the Judaizers accused Paul of inconsistency. Especially they said that, hey, when Paul is around Gentiles, he preaches this grace message, tells them that they don't need to keep the law, tells them that they don't need to be obedient. But when he's around Jews, oh yeah, he's circumcised, keep the law. He's got one message for them, and one message for you. And more than likely, their sales pitch was, look, we're consistent, we tell everybody to do the same thing. We have equal opportunity offenders. Now, Paul is a great, Paul's a model for ministry in so many ways. And one of the ways is that Paul doesn't do what so much of evangelical culture tells you to do when you're attacked, which is don't respond. Paul responds. He doesn't ignore the accusation, he confronts it head on, verse 11. He says, now brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? If, the, if Paul was preaching circumcision to somebody, why did the Judaizers hate him so much? If Paul, at least some of the time, was willing to preach a message of works, then as Calvin puts it in his commentary, quote, it would be completely in my power, he says, to avoid the displeasure of men and every kind of danger and persecution were I only to mix ceremonies with Christ. He could have done that. But know what he says? End of verse 11. In that case, if I did do that, the offense of the cross has been abolished. The cross was the center of Paul's message. That, that Jesus came, that he lived and died for us, was foundational to who Paul was. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Has, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Remember that word stumbling block. We'll come back to that in just a moment. A stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I told you to pay attention to that word in verse 23, a stumbling block. Same word in our passage in Galatians 5. The word for offense, exactly the same word. Scandalon. To the Jewish mind, there was something about this man, Jesus. There was something in particular about this message of his crucifixion, his public embarrassment that was so repulsive, that was so backward, it was offensive to them. And here's the thing, that's we sit and think maybe that was an oddity with them. The reality is all of humanity can't be neutral where the cross is concerned. All of humanity doesn't know what to do with it. Actually, I tell you, like, it's not that they don't know what to do with it. They can't accept it. One of my historical heroes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous 
British Baptist preacher. Spurgeon was just prolific in the amount of sermons he preached. And one of the sermons that he preached, that you can read online, it's really good. I mean, it's Spurgeon, so it's good. One of the sermons he preached was a sermon called The Offense of the Cross. And in that sermon, Spurgeon gives four reasons why the cross is offensive. As I was putting this together this week, with a very limited time schedule, I found this sermon incredibly helpful. Four reasons why the cross is offensive according to Spurgeon. Number one, it says it's offensive in how it deals with human wisdom. It basically says human wisdom is foolishness. Secondly, it's offensive in how it deals with human ability. Spurgeon says, humans believe that they have tremendous ability, but God says you have none without him. It's offensive in how it deals with human wisdom. It's offensive in how it deals with human ability. Thirdly, it's offensive in how it deals with human merit. Humans believe that they can earn anything with enough work, but God says, no, this is all me or not at all. Finally, Mr. Spurgeon said, it's offensive because it doesn't recognize any distinctions in humanity. The rich can't bribe their way in, the poor can't beg, the powerful can't force it, and the weak can't plead their way in. It's all of grace. I like that because when you look at the message that Judaism has preached, it fails on all four, all four counts. It appealed to human wisdom, it appealed to human ability, it appealed to human merit, and it appealed to ethnic distinctions. It was not God's message. And Paul basically says, listen, if I started preaching circumstances to make my life easier, the offense of the gospel, literally the scandal of the gospel, would be lost. Isn't it always tempting to kind of shave off the rough edges of the gospel so that the gospel can be more palatable. Isn't it easy to say, Christ, yeah, we like him. Like, you know, we like the hippie Jesus, long, flowing hair, and he just tells everyone to love everyone, and he's just really nice. You know, we'll keep him. But sin, you know, that stuff that Jesus talked about, eh, oh, I don't know about all that. We won't talk about that so much. Grace? Oh yeah, oh, we like grace. We'll, we'll keep that. Repentance? Mm, oh no, 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 no. Oh no, no, no. We can't, we can't tell people about that. We can't tell people about that. But the reality is that a message with the offense shaved off is no message at all. And by the way, there's a difference between the offense of the gospel and being offensive. Let me be clear. I am not saying like some Christians are want to do. I'm just going to be really offensive to the world around me and then wonder why they dislike me. It's like, as one preacher said, maybe they don't dislike you because you're a Christian. They dislike you because you're a jerk. <laughs> I agree. I'm just saying. If the world is going to hate us, let it be because we preach the message that basically abolishes their pride that leaves them bare and exposed and that calls them to simple faith as I mentioned this past week I, I made it out to the uh, West Coast Pastors Conference about 120 I believe pastors from all over the West and we were all just multiple times over lunch and dinner and late at night just discussing the temptations we all face in church life to 
distraction, to distortion, to you know, chase everything but this. I, I heard from one of my friends who's a pastor in Sacramento that there's a book that's currently you know, being prepared for publication for pastors in California, basically telling them that they now need to start leaving the state of California because God has basically abandoned the state of California. And my friend said, aside from the fact that I can't see that in the Bible, and he kind of got teary-eyed when he said this, what a distraction from the gospel. As a body, we have to be committed. We all, not just the guy who stands up front and talks every week. Every single one of us has to be committed to this scandalous, shocking gospel, and we have to refuse all distractions. Refuse every attempt to domesticate this gospel, whether through politics, whether through morality, whether through appealing to people on the level of their felt needs. Listen, a domesticated gospel helps nobody. I'm pretty much done. As we land the plane on this series that we've entitled Avoiding Gospel Distortion, Paul is going to leave the false teachers in the rear view. Actually, once we hit, once we cross over from chapter 5, verse 13, we're not going to see many, if any, mentions of the false teachers going forward. But before he goes, Paul has one last thing to say to these merchants of corruption. Did you see it there in verse 12? He says, I wish that those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. Galatians is known as one of Paul's harshest letters, and this is why it has that reputation. Now, I'm going to mark down my translation again this week because I think we take some of Paul's intended ambiguity out of this text. The, the, the original language translates it like this. It literally just says, would that they would cut themselves off who are troubling you. One of the things about Paul, when you read his writings, Paul is a master of double meaning. He can be multiple things in one sentence. He's a genius at it. And I think that's what's happening here. On one level, the Judaizers were indeed enamored with circumcision. In fact, when we first meet the Judaizers in Acts chapter 15, remember the summary that we get from them? Certain brothers came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Or certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were enamored with it. Paul essentially says, you like cutting so much. Go ahead and take it a couple inches further. It's about as much good. But there's another aspect to this. I don't have time to chase it, but if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 23 and 1 says that an emasculated person was not allowed to be part of God's covenant community. By wishing that they would be emasculated, Paul says to the Judaizers, before I go, how about you get lost, take the long way, and then forget the way home while you're at it. Go away. Since you have chosen to preach a message that is not God's message, 
you should be put out of the covenant community of God's people. Makes sense. He's already told us that in chapter 4, remember? Cast out the slave woman and her children. Get rid of the legalism and get rid of the people teaching it. In Paul's mind, these false teachers had hindered the Galatians from obeying the truth in simple faith to Jesus. That made them not misguided but well-meaning souls. It made them enemies who are only fit for mutilation and exclusion. And that may seem like a harsh way to end the series on gospel distortion, but it's probably the right place to end it. We should never, under any circumstances, tolerate a distorted gospel. We should never see a distorted gospel. It's not that big a deal. Please, eradicate that from your spiritual vocabulary. If it pertains to God's gospel, it's exactly a big deal. And in this passage, we see Paul's heart of love towards these Christians, that he's not willing to sit around and watch them be taken in by a message that is no message at all. He would much rather they were physically mutilated and socially ostracized than see them believe a message that would ultimately take them away from simple faith in the Savior. And so as we conclude this series, looking at avoiding gospel distortion, I hope that you have gained a sense of how important it is that we hold to the biblical gospel, the right gospel, that we don't compromise that message. that we let that message stand for what it is. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would work in us the kind of persuasion that Paul talks about, the persuasion that does come from you. The kind of persuasion that says, I will hold to your gospel with my dear life. I will refuse distortions and distractions. I will refuse anything that gets in the way of this message. And yet, Father, we also recognize that there will be moments where we are tempted to either distort or domesticate or be distracted from this message. And Father, we thank you that even in those moments, we still have the mercy, the love, and the grace that comes from you. That we are not abandoned by you in that. That you love us enough to call us back to first principles. Help us that we would go deep. That we would go hard on these principles. And that above all, you would treasure and love your gospel above all else. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.